So uh, on the months with fifth weeks, we get to throw in another bonus session on a Thursday night, and that is tonight, so that's really cool. All right, so we are talking about structuring, and, uh, and it's a question that we commonly get asked. So whether it's something from buying your own home or investment property right through to uh, partnering with, with others, as in partnerships or syndicates, um, renovations, developments, flips, options, all that sort of stuff. So we're talking about that this evening. I need to put a disclaimer up front. I am not your lawyer. I'm not your accountant. I'm not your financial planner. I'm not your mortgage broker or anything like that. So this advice isn't advice tonight. Anything that you hear is general advice only, and we're talking about general market conditions. We'll be talking about things that uh, I've done personally, things that we've done, we've seen our clients do, and of course, things that we've seen others do. This is not specific to you and your requirements and your needs. So now that that disclaimer is out of the way and ASIC and APRA are no longer knocking on my front door, we can kick off. So we're going to start with buying our own home. All right, so obviously there's a lot of people on our, pro on our program and they range in, in experience and skills, okay? And with that uh, comes very different questions, but they're always the same thing. How are we going to structure this? What are we going to do? Should I buy it in a trust? And you can get asked that, you know, from first or second homeowners, and you kind of go, nah, like that's that's not where it goes. So buying your own home is pretty simple, right? It's... If you want to take advantage of capital gains, uh, you know, f the free capital gains and that sort of stuff, you've got to buy it in your own name. Uh, now, we're going to go through each scenario and I'm going to list you the pros and cons. Now, I'm going to, it's not going to be a complete list. It's just going to be stuff that's, that we've got written down that's going to pop into my head as we go, right? So buying your own home, the pro is it's easy, okay? It's easy in your own name. It's easy to get financed. The banks have you tied up. Um they know everything about you. They have the the property as an asset. They have you as guarantor, and they have you written all over the transaction. Your name's on the contract. Your name's on the title. You're everywhere. So you are highly, highly involved in that, and that is pretty straightforward. So let's just put that to one side at the moment um, because your own home is not really what we do at Zenium. We do investments. So let's talk about that. All right, one thing I will say is that if you talk to a lawyer or an accountant or a financial planner, you're probably going to get three different uh, opinions on how you may structure something. The lawyer is going to structure it in such a way that you're completely protected from an asset perspective, okay? So it's going to be 100% uh, locked down and... Uh, perhaps for generations to come and, and there could be 16 layers of paperwork and whatever. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying lawyers will review it from an asset perspective, an asset protection perspective. So it might not be the simplest and it might not be the best for tax and it might not be uh, the best with superannuation and other bits and pieces, but it will probably be the absolute best for asset protection. Your accountant will, of course, focus on the tax minimisation. And they will they'll probably think about the asset protection and other bits and pieces and, of course, cross over to 
financial planning strategy. They'll bring their planner in and all that. But they will 100% focus on tax minimization. So it, it could be the best for tax, but it might not be the absolute best for asset protection. And then financial planning will take into retirement, uh, you know, some things maybe it could be to do with um, structuring things in a certain way so you still get a pension in an, age, in an old age or that sort of thing. So they're going to view things that way, okay? What you're going to do is just because you get three different answers, you have to choose the path that's best for you and you're going to have to work with those those three advisors to get the right strategy and the right structure. So that's that's my discussion about that. So I'm none of those for you guys, but we'll talk about each thing as we go. So you've got your own home and you want to buy an investment property. Okay, what's next? Most people would probably just say, okay, well, we're going to buy an investment property. Maybe you got married, you've got a spouse, etc. So let's go and buy it in, in joint names. Okay, so you trundle down the street, Go to an open home, see an agent. Wow, great property. All right, 500 grand, let's buy it. Yep, sounds good. Name on contract, you know, Scott and spouse. Okay, so that's one way. All right, obviously, the pro is it's just as easy to do as your own home. The con is that that property now uh, is, is another liability under your own name. Okay, so <clears throat> should you buy it in? Uh, as a partnership, well, that's a question we often get asked. And for that, I'm going to throw over to uh, our guest presenter tonight who's just joined us. Todd, you logged in, mate. You got video? All right. Mate, you get yourself sorted. So what happens is we've got you've got, you've got your own home, you've got an investment property. So should you buy in your own name for an investment property, or you, sorry, with you and your spouse, or should it be like joint tenants, tenants in common? Should it be a partnership? You know, all those things. So that's that's where we're going to head with our next thing. Todd, do you see those uh, buttons down the bottom of the screen where you got mic on and off and cam on and off? You yeah. need to hit them. Yeah, oh, are you there? All right. Sorry, I had some technical difficulties. Oh, that's okay. All right, so we can hear you. Have you, you got webcam or you got pants on or are you going to leave webcam off? <laughs> I can put it on if I Yeah, all right, because then it looks like I'm actually talking to someone. Okay, hello. See, so for all you guys uh, that are watching this at the moment, I wasn't making it up. Todd is a real person. He's joined us tonight, so there you go. Uh, so, Todd, we've just covered structuring for our own home, um, which is straightforward, right? It's in your own name and there's capital gains and all that sort of stuff that you get advantage of. Now... We've, we've, we've got some equity behind us. We're going to buy an investment property. And uh, and the, the most common thing is that uh, do you just go and buy it with you and your spouse? Uh, but sometimes we get asked, well, should we put that in a company or should we do it as a partnership? Um, and so what I want to touch on and for everyone's quick background here is Todd is, is a finance guru. So once again, all those disclaimers at the start, uh, he's not a lawyer, he's not an accountant, not a financial planner but he will be able to talk to us about how banks view the different structures. And I think that's really important because you've got to talk about those structures with those finance, uh, with lawyer, accountant, and financial planner yourself. But we need to know if the banks are even going to give us any money. So, Todd, we've got a couple. They've got a house. They're going for an investment property. Now, there's two options straight away. They can buy it in their own names together, like, you know, tenants in common, et cetera, joint tenants. Um they could do it in a partnership or they do it in a company. 
tell me why they would or wouldn't do it in one of those ways. Well, I guess it depends on their advice from their accountant. But um, to give you an example of how a structure can impact your, uh, your borrowing and particularly your borrowing costs, there are some banks that, that just will not provide you finance if it is in a company and trust for an investment property. Not many. I mean, most will. But uh, what uh, some non-banks will do, for example, is they'll increase the interest rate uh, to lend to a company in trust as opposed to an individual. Uh, their, their reasons for that are their own. Um, I guess it comes down to perhaps administration and if something goes wrong, uh, they're going to have to, uh, they can't just come straight after the people, they have to call on guarantors. So if you're a director of the company, you'll have to give a personal guarantee. Um, and um, as a partnership, look, partnership wouldn't really be particularly beneficial. You know, I don't see why you wouldn't you just buy those joint tenants. Yeah. Um, most of the time, uh, you've got two situations. One is that we expect that we're going to turn this um, property or properties into some kind of going concern business. That is the business of investing or the business of developing. And as a result, we might want a separate entity. We might want a separate company as trustee for a trust because using a discretionary trust, we can take profits and income and distribute that income to our nominated beneficiaries. Yes. So we, we might be nominating other people or other entities uh, to, uh, to distribute the income rather than taking it ourselves, which we'd have to do excuse me, as a joint tenant um, or as an individual owner. And I'll give an example. Uh, so I have a client who uh, runs a very profitable business and, uh, and those profits are distributed to a number of other companies through a trust and those companies and trusts hold a number of investment properties. Mm-hmm. The depreciation uh, that they uh, get as a deduction kind of reduces the business profits. I hope that makes sense. As well, so the, tax, so the income is being dispersed through that and so then it's a tax deduction in those individual companies and that hold the property, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so the business might make, let's say the business makes a million dollars and they would normally pay $300,000 of tax. They're taking that million and they're distributing it to a number of different trusts and those trusts hold residential investment properties for which they get the deductions. Yes. If they're losing money, for example, then that comes off that profit and as a result, result, it pays less tax. So, I mean, that was some fairly smart structuring. If if it's just a case of, well, we want to buy an investment property, you probably should talk to your accountant about, um, you know, from a taxation perspective, which is the best way to do it, because you might have one partner earning a lot of money and another partner not earning much, and you might like to distribute that income in a different way. In terms of going to a bank, as I said at the start, it really comes down to um, some banks will charge more for that different legal entity, and you just have to be aware of that. Um, particularly if you're, say, uh, an overseas buyer, you know, someone a non-resident. Um, many banks are struggling to provide finance to non-residents or you know, Aussies that are expats. And um, uh, we had one recently where we had an Aussie citizen overseas, and he wanted to buy the. Um, investment property in a company and trust because he and his he and his brother were doing it uh, and the, 
number of banks, probably four out of the five banks we spoke to would not lend to that entity because he was an overseas borrower. They wanted it in his personal name. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we've got our own home. We've got an investment property. So the simplest way to get an investment property is, is it, 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 as a single or a couple, just to do your own names. But there's difference in, um, as you touched on with your talking to your accountant, is like if uh, if one earns substantially more than the other and it's a couple, then you need to consider perhaps structuring the ownership of the property uh, in relation to that as well. So if we want to explain that, so say that, uh, let's do a really extreme, say there's a couple, one's in a really good paid job and one uh, doesn't earn any money, so to speak, then the question would be, would you own that property 50-50 uh, or would you own it in a different split uh, because then those gains from the property and the rent from the property, the, any, any of the rental income, uh, would be split differently. And yeah, because, of course, you can split anything from, from 50-50 to 99-1, right? Sure. What I would expect to see in that situation is that the couple would come to us for a loan and it's more likely that we would be buying the property in the person's name that is not earning an income, assuming that it's cash flow positive and we're going to get some cash out of it, right? Yeah. Um, if it's a negative situation, then you'd be putting it in the other name to, to reduce their tax. But I would expect if it's generating cash, it would be in the, in the other, you know, the one partner's name that has no income. Now, you can buy a property in one name and have the loan in both names. So right. in that situation, of course, if, uh, you know, partner B with no income comes along and says, well, I want to buy the property, the loan cannot be in that partner's name only because they don't have any income. Sure. So you do the loan in two names and own the property in one name so that the income is distributed to that person. Mm. You cannot do it the other way around. So you can't have the property in two names and just have the loan in one name. And gotcha. the, reason, the reason is because the property is owned by two people. And so, yeah. you know, in terms of providing security to the bank, um, there's no link between the, the two parties back to the one loan. Now, in the past, we might have done that as a guarantor loan we might have said oh well, you know partner a can guarantee it um but in recent times that policy has changed where banks will want to see well what is the financial benefit of that person uh you know being a guarantor to this loan so yeah. um it's not that it can't be done but it's more likely that most banks will want uh the two the loan in two names and the property in one and not the other way around and uh, uh, that's good. And I think you touched on a really important point that we we get caught up in a little bit with some clients is that um, they have that situation where one partner earns a lot more than the other. Um, so, and even if they do a, a, a loan of, uh, sorry, the property is 50-50 or 991 or whatever, the problem that they always come to is that this property at the moment might have deductions or be negative geared, but no one loves that idea for forever right so with the whole view of within 10 years this thing's going to make an income yeah. so they're sort of saying well hang on i want the tax deductions at the moment for the for the high income earner but then i don't really want to add more income in five ten years time to that income earner i want to disperse that to the one who doesn't earn as much and of course with the two names on there you've got to decide that before you even enter the transaction right 
yeah, otherwise you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're transferring the title and paying stamp duty across to the other person. And who wants to pay the government any more we already pay them? Yes, exactly, for the same transaction. <laughs> for something you already own. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not smart. All right, so with that in mind, if, if it's a fairly, you know, they're sort of earning the similar sort of thing and they do 50-50, you can build a portfolio. But how long can you build a portfolio for that? Like can you do two properties, three properties? If they're, say, neutral or semi-positive geared, does that ever run out if it's in your own name? When, what do you mean by run out? Or your ability to keep financing. Well, it'll obviously come down to the serviceability at the time. So banks will, you know, take into consideration the rental income and the interest deductions and the interest the, the deductions from tax. Their, their own servicing calculators um, work that out. And... Um, and it really, really just comes down to that capacity to repay. Now, could you own 25 properties? Yes, you could, absolutely. But some banks will treat you differently if you do. So, yeah, okay. so one of the uh, one bank, if you if you own more than five properties, they will treat you as a professional investor, and they'll start doing things like discounting the rent further than than they normally would when they assess you because they believe that you are rent reliant, which seems a bit silly to me because I'd rather be reliant on six properties than one job, but that's just the way. <laughs> yeah, so really, once again, where I would think that banks would say, well, you own five more properties, you're one of our best clients, they start, you know, penalising you. They start limiting the, um, the income, yeah. So they might say, well... <clears throat> I love the banks. Yeah, so for, for normally they might say for every $100 of rent, we're going to apportion 80% or $80 of that towards your capacity to repay, but they may start bringing that down to 70%. So you're losing 10% of the income um, uh, that you could use to repay the loan, and which you are receiving. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. You know, they're discounted. Okay, so with that in mind, then is that the same situation when you go to uh, like a, another type of structure, like a company or trust or something like what happens in that? Are you immediately classed as a professional investor or they don't have that sort of uh, same? You're not classed as a professional investor just because you've got a company and trust structure. It's okay. more about the amount of properties that you own. Okay. So, so let me put this straight. So that's, that's the amount of properties that entity owns. So if I had ABC company and it has four properties in, then it would be Clark. But if, if I went to five properties with, with that bank or something, they might say, well, now you're a professional investor. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. So what I could do is I could have four properties in ABC Co and then I could have another four in XYZ Co and we're never going to cross that sort of threshold or do they group them all together? No, they group them all together because you provided a personal guarantee across all of the debt load. And, okay. And, and when uh, an assessment is done, it's done across all of your uh, liabilities and so you would call the um, the loan in the company name your you know your prime liability if you like for a better way to put it, and you provide the personal guarantee to that so that's a contingent liability, and as a result you could be called upon to pay that. So they will use it within your assessment within the assessment process. So if you've got four companies, sixteen properties, they want to know the details of all of those. You can't separate them. Okay, so then. We can't get around that. So what? why would we ever move to a, a company slash trust or some other structure like that? So why well, a, would you ever do that? 
Well, depending on depending on uh, you know your current employment uh, and your uh, asset protection strategy. So, so to give you an example, um, let's say that you run a business and you have some risk of being uh, sued or some or damage, you know, having some damage occur where you are under attack personally yeah. uh, in litigation, then you may be, you know, part of that attack may end up in personal bankruptcy and, uh, or you may have to liquidate your personal assets uh, to, to repay some kind of litigation that's been made against you, which your insurance doesn't cover. Um, so in that case, let's say someone's coming after you for your assets, then holding them in your personal name might be a very dangerous proposition for you. Right. And this is what I touched on just before you jumped on was about different structuring styles for tax versus asset protection versus retirement planning, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the lawyer would be focused on that sort of asset protection side. So, okay. So once again, these are the sort of decisions you've got to make before you enter into a property because you, even if you have it in your own name as a, as a, with your wife or husband or spouse or whatever, and it's not very easy to transfer that into a company name down the track. There's a whole bunch of costs and redo. Yeah, mainly, mainly stamp duty costs, obviously. I mean, it, there could be an argument to say that you wouldn't, shouldn't have any assets in your personal name, uh, yeah. your family home. And um, for those reasons, you know, you've got trading risk uh, and you've got um, that litigation risk. You know, you, if you're running a business as, say, a sole trader, and you know, which is which provides no legal protection, and you've got your own home in your own name, then you're at risk. Yeah, uh, you're at risk of all of those things happening. Someone coming after you for your assets, and the only one you've got is your home. Well, you're going to have to liquidate that. Yeah, yeah. So if you're a risky person, uh, such as perhaps me who lives in the property space, um, then you really don't want things in your own name, right? And so if you're starting to build an active portfolio, you've got to think about this sort of this strategy and, and how how much you are at risk. And I think that's a really good point you touch on. If you personally tick off enough people or do something or you might not tick them off, you just could completely get blindsided by something in your career, then those assets are at risk. Absolutely. I mean, people don't like to think about these things, but they happen, you know. Yeah. So, um, there's the you know the um, the building industry right now is under a lot of pressure and uh, a lot of regulation, and and for some builders, they are sole traders and they have their family assets in their own name, and if their building company collapses uh, and they owe money to creditors, those creditors, you know, will come after them personally because they're a sole trader. Yeah. If there was a, if there was a company in the middle of that, they could only come after the the company and its assets, which which pretty much nil, right? So, uh, or if the the family home was in a company, uh, then that person becoming personally bankrupt wouldn't impact on that entity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what well, we've got six ish six seven minutes left to go. So I just want to cover with you specifically the difference between. Uh, you know, whether it's paperwork or requirements or bank's view on uh, you getting loans personally, as in the person, versus if you have corporate and trust structures. 
So we'll we'll let the we'll let the watchers decide if which structure is best for them. But let's just outline the differences in terms of when you as a broker, if I come to you and say it's for my own name, you ask me for this, or if it's in a company, you're going to ask me for 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 whatever. So just briefly outline the difference. Uh, so if you're applying for a loan in your personal name, then, then we'll ask you for all of your personal information, your assets, your liabilities, your income, etc., including if you're running a business, your financial statements and tax returns. If you add a company and, you know, the company is trustee for a family discretionary trust, then we'll want details of that company and we'll want a copy of the trust deed itself. The bank will review that trust deed and make sure that it's a legally binding trustee and that that trust has the power to borrow money, um, which most do these days. I mean, I haven't seen one come back that doesn't, but some old trusts have some different kinds of clauses in them that banks don't like. The actual amount of information collected is not that much more. It's not that much more difficult. Where it does make a difference is if we're going to a particular bank and they charge you more for borrowing in a company and trust. Okay. Okay. So the documentation is not particularly more onerous unless you've got multiple companies upon companies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Okay. All right. So, but then again, if you're doing that structure, you've either got lots of properties or lots of reasons to have those structures to protect assets, right? Yeah. I mean, I would be. If you're embarking on a property investment or any kind of asset purchase, I'd be talking to your accountant and your lawyer about a number of things. One is your tax planning. Secondly, asset protection. Yeah. Now, I know you mentioned retirement, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in estate planning. Yes. Because sometimes people go and do a will in their personal name and they forget that they own their investment property in a trust. Yeah. Uh, or you know, it's not done correctly and all of a sudden the assets in that trust are not theirs to give away anymore. So um, there's a number of reasons to get professional advice about the structures and determine which one is correct for you before you make that purchase. Yeah, yeah, that's good, that's good. Um, all right, so I think we've covered, we've covered you know, personal structures and that, we've covered the first investments, building a portfolio, is there, apart from serviceability, if we're using companies and trusts to build portfolios, is there any limitation from finance or is it just serviceability? It's just serviceability, yeah. Okay. But they don't really have an issue with how you're structuring it as long as they can capture the income. Yeah, okay. Okay. And as long as you do the personal guarantee? Yes, which you'll, you'll have to. <laughs> yeah. You might have a choice about that. <laughs> All right. Well, in the last few minutes, because uh, you know you're across some of our project as well, uh, projects, but we often get asked how we structure our uh, our projects, our micro and small projects that we do with, with our clients um, because we always use uh, companies and trusts. Uh, and, and, of course, the main reason is uh, twofold. Firstly, we always create a new entity for a new project so it's clean uh and it's isolated and that entity only does that that project mm-hmm. um and secondly uh and so well on that point as well then we shut it down at the end so we get rid of it so it doesn't exist any longer and secondly we do it for the asset protection side of things for both our clients 
uh, ourselves and the project to once again isolate that. Yeah. So um, there's there's two different sides to what we do, and, and as you know, with our partners being involved, um, they have an entity as well, and, and a lot of times it's either a company or a unit trust. Now we haven't touched on unit trust because there's so much fun, mm-hmm. um, you know. But those those people uh, have that structure on one side, which then you know loans some money to the development entity on this side, which has a different structure, a corporate and trust structure over here. So we use structures for all our projects. Is nothing ever done in their own names, and and for all those people that ask those questions. All the reasons that Todd has said tonight are why. Um, the asset protection, the ability to disperse funds as needed through the trust, whether it's a discretionary trust, whether it's a unit trust that's that's fixed. So do you give us a really quick overview of the difference between discretionary and a unit trust, Todd? Well, well yeah, a yeah, quick overview. Um, um, so a unit so trust effectively is, a, is a, uh, an entity that... Uh, a, a client, well, a client or anyone would invest in, for want of a better way to put it, or buy units in, and those units have a value. Uh, and your distribution of income depends on how many units you own in the unit trust. So if you if you own five units of the 10 units, you're going to get 50% of the distribution. Yeah. A discretionary trust is exactly that. It's up to the trustee to decide who gets what from a beneficiary point of view. And that means that if there are two people involved, they may apportion 100% of the income across to one person and zero to the other. It's discretionary. Whereas a unit trust, if I take a step back, as I said, it depends on how many units you own. So yeah, you, know, you must receive a certain amount through the unit trust according to what you own. In a discretionary trust, if you're a beneficiary, you don't have to receive any income at all. It could go to someone else. And that's where we come back to with some of our clients when, when you and I both touched earlier on with the one high income earner and the one not so much. Uh, some of them use those discretionary trust uh, models yes. Uh, yes. to disperse that income to the one that doesn't have uh, much income or any income yes. uh, rather than going to the one that does. And that's a classic example of how to use those trusts and corporate structures to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of information that you need to talk to your accountant about to get to, to plan that before you go into the project. Yeah. So you can take the forecast, the feasibility, provide them with your expected return so that they can map out, okay, well, if we put X dollars here, this is what your position is going to be, uh, you know, and give you multiple scenarios so you can decide on what structure is correct for you and how to, how to apportion that uh, income. Yeah. All right. So uh, one thing I didn't mention, we're going to call it a night pretty soon, but if there's any questions, log them in the sidebar and we'll get them answered live now as we do the wind up. Uh, If anyone's got any questions apart from commenting on my hair, that would be awesome. Um, So what I will say is that I'll reiterate again, talk to your lawyer, accountant and or financial planner on all these structure sort of questions, but you've got to know it before you go to contract, right? There's no much point after the contract. You've got to have all that sort of before you go to contract. You've got to have the name right. It can be your own name. There's nothing wrong with that, but you've got to know why you're doing it. You can't just do it because you think you didn't think of anything else. Um, so, look, I'd like to thank you tonight for joining us, uh, everyone who's watching, and a special thank you to Todd. Mate, uh, thank you. Todd is one of our 
preferred panel members at Zenium. Uh, so any of our industry partners that are join our program and that uh, get heavily screened, I must say, um, obviously not for technical ability, but <laughs> for their knowledge, that's why he's here, right? He might not be able to drive a computer, but he has all the answers that you need. So uh, if you need to speak to a lawyer or an accountant or a financial planner or a mortgage broker who's sitting on your screen tonight, you need to contact us at Zenium. We can put you in touch with all those people, the right people in your area. We'll have a quick chat to you, find out where you are, what you're chasing, and we'll give you a list of names and some of our, of course, preferred panel members. All right, there doesn't seem to be any more questions, which is fine. Obviously, my hair was the topic of the evening. Todd, thank you very much Thanks, for joining Todd. us this evening. Uh, mate, I know we'll see you again about something that's probably not so dry. And apologies, everyone, this is a dry topic, but it's really, really super important to get right because it not only could cost you massive amounts in stamp duty, but it could cost you your own assets if you don't. All right, that's it from us, our bonus fifth week in August, our bonus night on structuring from Zenium Real Wealth. I'm Scotty, and I'll see you next time. Thanks, man.